Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 402 with my guest, Dr. Christine Moutier. She is the chief medical officer for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Um, and she's a psychiatrist. And we're going to talk about how to deal with hopelessness, whether it's you or someone you love. And uh, we got some great surveys planned for today. Some uh, really, really moving ones, some funny ones, some inspiring ones. Yeah. Uh, hey, if you are near the Minneapolis area on October 13th, come on out for live, two live tapings of the podcast at uh, Sisyphus Brewing. <laughs> Sisyphus. <laughs> I swear to God, I'll be more on my game than I am right now. I just got up from a nap. Sisyphus Brewing in Minneapolis, October 13th. We're going to do two shows, a five o'clock show with uh, comedian uh, Chell uh, Bjorgen, and then at eight o'clock with uh, a return appearance of uh, Nora McInerney. Uh, that's going to be at eight o'clock. I can't remember if I said that or not. And uh, we're going to have a little bit of audience participation on, on that one. Um, I'll put up links to this, but if you go to Sisyphus Brewing, Dot com and click on their comedy or events, uh, comedy events, etc. Uh, you'll you'll see that there's uh, links for that. But again, I'll put this under the show notes for today's episode. Uh, speaking of today's episode, it is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Uh, it's an online therapy provider, and as I've said many times, I love it. I've been doing it for probably close to two years, and my therapist Donna is just the fucking best. I share everything with her. She has such a compassionate, practical approach to um, developing tools for me to deal with uh, my deep self-hatred. <laughs> uh, I think that should be their banner, is we helped Paul with his deep self-hatred. Um, but uh, go check it out. Go to betterhelp.com slash mental 
Uh, make sure you include the slash mental so they know you came from the podcast. Uh, fill out a questionnaire, then you get matched with a BetterHelp.com counselor, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you, and you need to be over 18. Um, I want to read two surveys, and then we'll get right to the right to the uh, the interview. Oh, and at the end of today's episode, um, I didn't um, do a whole lot in the way of uh, recording in Croatia, but one of the things I did record is Siri trying to pronounce the street names. And if you listen to this podcast today for anything, I think it's worth hearing that alone. Um, this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Living a Loco and Oh my God, she describes being broken up with. She should write a book about being broken up with. The All right. Uh, I was feeling down last Saturday afternoon. It's not uncommon on weekends when I don't have plans and everyone seems to be busy. My boyfriend, Jared, had also broken up with me two weeks prior and it had been a shock. We met five months before, and I had a genuinely special feeling about it from the beginning. He was down-to-earth, funny, interesting, progressive, smart, and well-read, and genuinely one of the most physically attractive people I had ever met. Uh, when we were together, right now there are people hearing this going, I hope he breaks up with you because I'm fucking jealous. How did you find a guy like that. Uh, when we were together, we never stopped grinning. His friends and family were authentic, wonderful people, and I'd never been more happy or confident. I was invested and quietly thought that he was, quote, my person. It was all pretty raw, but I had done my best to keep busy. So that afternoon, I decided to go for a long walk to distract myself, looking at all the expensive houses around the inlets and bays between the peak I lived on and Sydney's North Shore. Not long into the walk, I remembered that some months earlier, while driving over the nearby bridge, Jared and I had talked about going for a picnic in the area. I walked back across the main bridge, feeling pretty glum, struggling to get him out of my head. I think I was going over his words and what his face looked like as he told me he didn't think he was, quote, on the same page. I remember that at the time I had just been laughing at something and felt my mouth drop from its easy smile when Jared's expression and tone suddenly changed. I could vividly remember a ringing in my ears that came on as soon as I realized he was breaking up with me. I think it was shock. A familiar, churning sensation entered my stomach and heat pricked at my face. The floodgates in my mind trembled as a thousand thoughts of self-worthlessness and doubt pushed on the other side, pulsed on the other side. My chest took on a crumbling sandcastle quality, and I almost felt uh, if, as if I was shrinking. The physical symptoms prompted me to think of my DBT training and reminded me of the control I have to create space. I stopped for a moment and breathed deeply. I leaned against the protective grate of the bridge's walkway and peered through at the different blue ripples through the water. I love, by the way, too, breaking up with someone who suffers from depression on a bridge. Um, uh, I thought about how the bright white wakes left by sailboats looked like those master chef plating techniques for sauces and purees. The coves and peaks of land snaked perfectly into the arched frame of the Sydney Harbor Bridge. My body stilled. I reminded myself it was all right. I am resilient, I thought to myself. 
I actually made myself smile and recalled how well I'd been doing and how proud I felt of where I was. I had a renewed step when I continued walking and even picked some wattles to put in a vase when I got home. I was nearly at the crossing to go onto my street and I happened to look up and see a poster on a telephone pole. The concert he'd planned to take me to. Thank you for that. Oh, my God. Uh, and then this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Outran My Problems. And uh, she writes, Two years ago, I got a dog. He's an Australian cattle dog. Uh, the breed is known to need a lot of activity and incredibly loyal and highly intelligent. By the way, shout out to Australia. To uh a lot of great support from there and uh, two surveys in a row from Australia. Uh, I was somewhat hesitant to take him because I don't live on a farm like his mother and wasn't sure I'd be able to stimulate him enough. However, while visiting my in-laws, who have the mother, when he was a puppy of about four weeks old, he broke away from the rest of the pups, climbed right up onto my legs, and went to sleep. I was sitting with my legs straight out, leaning back with my hands holding me up. It was like he had chosen me. In that moment, I knew I would do anything for him. I took him home and made sure to take him for walks every day. As he grew, the walks got longer, and once I got the go-ahead from the vet, we started running together. I hadn't run since middle school. Slowly but surely, we worked our way up, and now we can run six miles together without stopping. He usually likes to walk from that point. I, however, found the desire to run longer. I started to enter races. I started going to run club so I could gather with a bunch of people on those long, slow runs. Today, he came with me for a six-mile run with my run club. After it, I looked down at him and realized two years ago, I would never have believed you if you told me I would be running more than a block. Two years ago, I would have been at home, alone, probably crying about how lonely I was. I was a very lonely, lonely person. Depression pushing me back down on the couch any time I tried to get up. Because of my dog, I am no longer lonely. I have friends, and I have a companion. That moment, looking down at him, I realized that I am happy, and it's all because of him. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame, and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom. People-pleasing. Dread. Silent, invisible. Just wailing. Stuck in the grip of the obsession. Derealization. Depersonalization. The suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get. You know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scottface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. <laughs> and I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Dr. Christine Moutier, who is a psychiatrist, and you are on the, the more, more than on the board. You're the, the head medical officer. medical officer for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Yep. Um, so many questions that I want to ask you. 
how do we support uh, people who are suicidal? How do we support the people that care about them? Not only when that person is suicidal, but uh, if that person does complete suicide, how do we support the people left behind? But before we get to those questions, I want to know what led you into uh, this. And also as a psychiatrist, we have so few guests that are psychiatrists and not because I don't want them. Um, I don't know if it's just that they're too busy, but it seems to be the profession that has the most amount of mystery uh, around it. I think because of the um, the art and the science, kind of the combination of it, that it requires empathy and, and human connection and seeing the person as a whole, but it also involves you know, neuroscience and all that other stuff. And there's, I hate to say it, but there's a lot of bad ones out there that, that don't um, treat patients as if they are a person. They tr seem to treat them as if they are a disorder. Um, so those are all the questions I want to get to. If you want to touch on any of those as we talk about your story, but let's start with uh, whatever details you're comfortable sharing about your life and what led you to this passion of yours that you have. Sure. Great. Thank you so much for having me on such an important topic that touches far more people than perhaps most people realize it's the majority of Americans who have been personally touched by suicide in some way. So, um, Right. So for the last several years, I've served as the chief medical officer for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which is the largest national nonprofit organization fighting suicide and really trying to make a dent and turn this uh, major public health crisis around. And I, my journey starts with my own personal crisis that happened while I was in medical school, which sensitized me to kind of the human experience and how it's going to work for me as a trainee and going on my path um, is medicine even for me. Um, fortunately, I did stay, found psychiatry, love working with people with mental illness and really any kind of human struggle. Uh, did you have a specialty in mind before you chose psychiatry? Yeah, I thought I would go into family medicine or pediatrics, and I thought you go to medical school to treat patients out there in the community. I had no concept of other types of work that um, one could do after medical school and after training. Um, but that, starting with that personal experience related to mental health for myself, um, you know, it's one of those situations that you don't wish that kind of experience on anyone, um, on your worst enemy. And yet, when you go through it, and you come through it with new learnings, and a new freedom about how to live your life, and it gives you observational skills also about the culture around you, and other people who might be suffering and not having their needs met because of you know, those unwritten rules about culture and the environment. And certainly within medical training, there was a culture that was quite stifling of individual mental health needs and a lot of fear around what will happen yeah. if I even talk about my experience, let right. alone get help or get treatment. Right. 
Um, kind of like the military in some ways. Will I be placed? You know, will this hurt my career? I would imagine. Yes. Thoughts like there that. are several occupations, probably actually numerous for whom the rules might be slightly different, but the same principles apply. If I get treatment, um, if I take an antidepressant, if I get therapy, or if I even talk about what's actually going on inside my head, am I going to lose my, you know, my gun if I'm a law enforcement officer, my medical license if I'm a physician? And, and those are real concerns, but things, at least in the field of medicine, and I think other fields as well, are changing for the better to treat mental health like the health issue that it is. There does seem to be a sea change uh, yes. going going on right now. Are you comfortable sharing what your struggles were more specifically? Sure, yeah. I grew up in an environment, well, first of all, um, I have a genetically loaded family history mm-hmm. on both sides with mood disorders, psychotic disorders, schizophrenia, bipolar, um, and kind of didn't realize that until I was in medical school and, mm-hmm. you know, you're learning about the genetics of mental illness, like, whoa. Um, that actually, that, that, that wasn't really part of the situation, but grew up in a family where achievement is really everything. It defines the children in that family. It's who you are. Yes, yes. Conditional love, or at least conditional praise. Right, right. Um, and so I majored in piano performance in college, knowing I was going to go on to medical you've school. Said, you've said it all right there. <laughs> you have said it all. What's right. the next thing? Right, like I did recital. Okay. Crazy. Yes. 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 Perfectionist. Um, right. All of that. Worrier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's, that's medicine draws us sort of highly driven, perfectionistic, dot every I. Analytical. Mm-hmm. Um, but also caring and identifying with being a caregiver, not needing help ourselves. Right. So, you know, a lot of this is a setup for many, many healthcare professionals. And in my case, it sort of culminated in that classic feeling of um, I was so unaccustomed to being in the middle of my class in medical school, it it triggered lots of fears and basically like a growing sort of continuous panic that I would be failing out at any moment. Um, Based on anything in particular? No, I I did very well academically, but that is what goes through um, a person's head who's in that situation. And it came to such a culmination that I took time off and I actually was thinking I needed to leave and drop out of medical school because this was certainly not, I didn't think I was competent enough to become whatever it is that, that was happening and try, you're trying to become in medical school. And fortunately, I had a dean who said, no, take time off um, and come back and check in on a quarterly basis. Well, I ended up taking a year off and getting treatment. And that experience of therapy was life-changing because essentially when you, when you figure out what those internal voices that are so punitive and perfectionistic, and you don't apply them to anyone else but yourself. No, no. If somebody talked to you the way we talk to ourselves, you would get a restraining order. Yes, right, right. And um, really just, you know, getting some clarity about that, it was... Um, you know, they say that psychotherapy is more effective when there is um, a time constraint. And I had to make a decision about whether I was going back to medical school within a few months. Mm-hmm. And so it sort of accelerates the process of 
um, and the motivation to figure things out. So, and what it, were what were the uh, specific? Uh, thoughts and anxieties and and how did they present themselves did was there suicidal ideation um some but not that wasn't the most prominent it was more of a feeling of if i am not and fill in the blank in my case top of my class feeling secure perfect um then I might not be worth breathing air and taking space on this planet. I mean, it's that illogical mm-hmm. and irrational. But I think, um, again, I don't, I, what I learned after um, my own experience is that these kinds of negative, distorted thoughts are incredibly common. And of course, more common if there's a mental health condition that's shaping your brain and your thinking. Yeah. Um, that kind of distorted thinking is, ex- but it's extremely common even without yes. a mental health condition. And, and especially if we were raised in homes where there was, for lack of a better term, uh, emotional poverty, uh, you know, where it was, there was love, but there wasn't any kind of script for how to express feelings or feelings were deemed to be messy or uncomfortable or weakness. And who wouldn't run into their head if you believe that 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 is the, the the truth. Yes, yes, exactly. So the amazing thing that happened was that there was some some significant sort of progress and resolution that allowed me to go back to school with a new set of rules that says you are a worthwhile person because you're alive on this planet. And that applies to every human being on the planet, including myself. And I hope that we all can um, embrace that if you if you struggle with that at all, because it, it gives you a new freedom to find out what you are supposed to be doing yes. and what makes sense for you, as well as sort of fulfilling your purpose, if you believe in that kind of yes. um, that kind of thing. And and I, I, I want to add for people who have made grievous mistakes uh, you know, because a lot of people will look at their past and say, oh, you know, I hurt someone or I was selfish or I did blah, blah, blah. If, if you are seeking to become a better person, that is all that matters. And everyone, I, you know, I may take grief for this, but I, I believe serial killers deserve Compassion. I think that the society should absolutely be protected from them. Uh, but they're still a human being, and I believe all human beings are worthy of love. I just kind of viewed them as, as dogs that bite, and they need to be muzzled. But um, that that's kind of my take on it, because I, as you were saying that, I know that there were some people who were thinking, yeah, but I'm not worthy because, you know, I, you know, treated my kids like shit, or I was a burglar, or et cetera, et cetera. Yes, yes, that's right. We all could have our own reasons for making ourselves the exception to our yes. otherwise compassionate view of all of humanity. That's why you should always watch a Hitler documentary, because <laughs> on a curve, you're kicking ass. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, so so anyway, to fast forward, what that experience gave me was a new sensitivity to all of those things in the environment and other people who might be experiencing challenges. And lo and behold, challenges are ubiquitous in yes. human beings, including yes. among my colleagues at the time who were other medical students than residents and physicians. Hold that thought for one second. What what was it specifically that helped you get to the place where you could go back? Was it anything other than just time and reflection? No, How did no. you get to the self-kindness? Um, uh, well, for me, there was a very specific experience that happened in the course of psychotherapy where I figured out what that internalized uh, voice that was so punitive was about and actively rejected it for a period of time. I had to reframe it, recognize it, sort of fight it, grapple with it, choose to believe what I actually did believe again about the rest of human beings for myself. Yeah. So it's a very active process. And is that was that CBT uh, or is it? Um, you don't have to name it. That's all right. I was it, just it curious. wasn't. It. 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 I. I wouldn't even know what to call it. Okay. It, um, the. I would love to give her a shout out. Um, she's no longer alive, but. Um, my therapist was an incredible woman. She was the ex-wife of Jonas Salk of the Salk polio vaccine. Oh, my God. Donna Salk. Um, as a, if that family hasn't done enough. As, and she um, was, a, is a social, was a social worker and um, was in her older years at the time. And she would sit in a rocking chair. And I would think, what is happening? No progress is happening here. You know how psychotherapy mm-hmm. feels. It's yes. slow. But in hindsight, in a few short months... That is quite tremendous that um, those discoveries and sort of resolves were made that are forever with me to this day and are what I, when I see people who are being so self-punitive and whatever is driving their struggle or distress or suicidal thinking, I do have this incredible compassion that's both based on my training as a psychiatrist and knowing about the neurobiology of the brain, but also having that empathy for the fact that anyone can suffer and can can go to that place. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it sounds like we need to tackle the nature and the nurture yes. aspect of suffering. Yes, yes, 100%. So back to where I cut you off. Uh, so you came back with this new kind of insight and uh, passion. Right. And um, I got lucky, too, in my training program. My training director turned out to be my lifetime mentor and now friend, Sid Zissick. And so over the years, um, psychiatry training was a good fit for me. And um, so I excelled and was able to also both teach, support more junior trainees. And, you know, that feels nothing feels better than helping other people for most. By the time I was in my last year, I was chief resident. um, And again, through um, many different opportunities and mentorship, you know, I, I think no one necessarily forges their path alone. You you. You're lucky if you're, if it's a good fit and you're able to be authentic and honest and there's something about your work that you're connecting to and it leads on to the next thing. And so for me, what ended up happening was I happened to be joining the faculty at UCSD at a time when there wasn't a lot of awareness about physician distress. Um, it wasn't welcome necessarily to talk about it. 
but some of us were talking about it and thinking about it. And then as the medical center and medical school lost several physicians about one a year over a period of years to suicide, then there was this growing sense on the part of the top level leadership at the hospital and the medical school that we should really look at this and do something about it if there is anything that can be done. And so even though I was trained as a psychiatrist by then, I had become, by that point in time, I had been a residency training associate training director in psychiatry and then moved into the medical school as assistant dean for student affairs and medical education. So I was afforded this awesome role to be able to be interacting with hundreds of medical students, residents, and shaping curriculum, culture, and programming. And fortunately, like I mentioned, through the course of those terrible losses of colleagues, the leadership became ready to explore what would suicide prevention even look like for physicians? Does the environment have anything to do with a population suicide risk? Which, to be perfectly honest, I didn't know the science at the time to understand that absolutely the environment and the culture yeah. has a lot to do with a population suicide risk. But I didn't know that. And so we went on kind of a search to look at what has worked for for other populations? What does the science say? And one thing we found was the United States Air Force Suicide Prevention Program that had used a 13-pronged approach to train every level of the hierarchy in the military, um, in the Air Force, about mental health needs, about the warning signs of suicide risk, to teach that, you know, these are human struggles, really destigmatizing the experience not a of distress, right? It's a normal reaction mm -hmm. to stress. Yes. And then, so it's training that works to address stigma. It's also some skills training about how to have caring conversations with people in distress. And it's learning and figuring out which policies in your system are actually inadvertently discriminating against people who are struggling and keeping them silent. So you have to create pathways for accessing support and mental health care that ensures that there's no punitive consequence. Wow, I did not know that about the uh, about the Air Force. Right, well, in, in the case of the Air Force, one of the reasons we decided to kind of model our approach after theirs is they had a successful outcome of reducing the suicide rate, which had been on the rise at the time in, in the Air Force members, by 33%. So that's a, very, that's a very significant reduction in suicide prevention. Suicide prevention is hard because it's multifaceted and... Um, requires reaching people at moments when they are more likely to withdraw from any yes. programming and messaging that you're trying to do as a leadership. Yeah, it, it so often reminds me of a wounded animal that just wants to go hide and lick its wounds because it feels like even more pain to, you know, when we can't even put into words what it is that we're feeling other than not wanting to be alive, to have to sit down and expose that part of ourselves and the fear that I'm going to misdescribe it or I'm not going to be able to do it and then I'll realize that I'm just an exaggerator or whatever the thoughts are that's swirling. It's just this oppressive gray blanket that, that, um, is so overwhelming and yet so hard to describe. And I would add, I agree with everything you're saying. And if you keep it locked up internally, it tends to spiral around and become, it sort of grow in its level yes. of distortion. 
Whereas if you're sitting with somebody who is caring, generally supportive, they do not necessarily have to be an expert, but that can hear you just listen and tolerate it at a minimum and not judge, there is something that happens in that process of bringing it out into the open, even with one other person, that can be incredibly helpful and therapeutic on its own, let alone what might happen next to further explore or address anything that's underlying those sort of distortions and self-punitive feelings. And I would imagine, too, for people who are perfectionists, the idea of going into something that is so gray and nuanced, it, it it's terrifying to be able to, you know, do this thing that you don't know how to get a leg up on before you go do it. There's such a leap of faith and a feeling of under, under preparedness that, of course, once we're in it, we realize, well, there's no preparation for it. It's just about, you know, the dynamic of letting what's inside of us out and having another person help us with it. Yes, it's absolutely. not about intelligence. I mean, you're reminding me of of a more maybe generalizable experience, which I certainly feel like for my own life, and I think others who have experienced trauma or crisis and come through it will talk about, which is a newfound freedom. We also see this in our in our network in the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. People who are advocating for change and for saving other lives after they've been touched by the loss of their own. Um, loved one's suicide. It's such a game changer. You're so freed up to do what really matters to you that, um, in many ways, that, that usual way of feeling, um, anxious, which we all still feel at times, yeah. all those human things, there's something else that drives you past that. And it's an incredibly freeing experience, especially if you find that it's positive and it's working in whatever way that means for your, you know, your life and your work, your volunteerism, whatever. Yeah, the feeling of meaning and purpose is the best muscle relaxer I have ever discovered. And I don't need a prescription to get it. Um, there's a part of my brain that battles it, that wants to keep me isolated in my recliner. But um, having a support network where I'm reminded that I matter and that I can help other people. And by helping other people, I'm helping myself because I'm deepening um, a sense of what it means to be alive and it's beyond the cult of materialism and success and it's it's hard to put into words but i know you know you're mm -hmm. not in your head yeah is there a, a way that you can kind of elaborate on that well it's or you put your own two cents in or is, is that um, have we kind of completed the idea no i i i think there there could be um, I love what you're saying about there is something in this experience that's incredibly counterculture to the prevailing, at least superficial norms around what being a successful person right. um, amounts to. Because the truth is, none of that external stuff gets you this internal experience of um, 
joy, purpose, peace. meaning, focus, peace. Right. And, and again, um, this is not to say that, that it doesn't, um, include other human experiences of suffering. You, you can, the, the amazing thing that I'm seeing in, um, to some extent my own life, but especially as many advocates in suicide prevention speak about their experiences, they talk about their daily struggles, their chronic recurrent struggles with whatever it might be, uh, uh, an anxiety disorder, chronic suicidal ideation. But they have this new perspective that uses tools and discoveries that knows how to manage it. And they're actively doing that. It's, it's a day to day, moment by moment sometimes experience. And when they draw on a network of others to help them with that, it's incredibly empowering. It's beyond words. Yeah. It's beyond words. It really is. And, and, um, one thing that, that you said made me think of something that I really want to talk about, which is for that person out there who's thinking, well, what is talking to somebody else going to do for my problems, which are real problems? I have financial problems. You know, mm-hmm. I'm under this tremendous amount of strain and talking about it does nothing. Right. For right. Those Maybe things. I have chronic pain or something, you know, yeah. Right. It's- and, and this is both, I want to say, talking about it with a therapist can help shape the, this mediator that is the layer of your mind that while it might not change your financial debt, will change the outcome of how you choose and how you're able, not just choice, it's it's an actual ability Resilience. to address it in a different way. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you will get a different outcome, actually, objectively different outcome through that change, small but significant changes that you can do through psychotherapy or other mm-hmm. Um, modalities. But I also want to speak to just this idea of why would I tell anyone about these kind of embarrassing experiences I have with the, where my thoughts go and my moods and my problems? Like it's just, it's, it's so who wants to hear about it? And it's nothing I want to talk about. You know, many people have been, we all probably have been so socialized to keep that locked up and under wraps and just present the happy face. Um, and what I would say That's to what that Facebook person. Is for. Yeah, really. <laughs> Although Facebook is getting used for yes. these, these yes. kinds of, um, yes, I'm actually, disclosures too. Yes. It, it can be very powerful. Yeah. For, yeah. For yeah. Good, but, right. Yeah. No, it can be amazing. But yeah, it's both ways. Um, I just have to tell you, I don't know that there's anything we're going to say to convince you, but you just have to try it. Yes. Pick one person you trust and try going deeper and see what you get back. Yes. And and just let that be a, a genuine sort of experiment, and then you can decide whether you want to pursue that further. Okay. But I will just tell you that for myself, it's a game changer. You feel connected. You know you're not alone. Um, and you also get new ideas because people love sharing what worked for them. And um, and just that experience of connecting is so important and powerful on the most primitive level for us. Yes, and it may feel terrifying at first. My experience has been, especially with support groups, is it begins to feel like a jacuzzi. Um, 
my support group meetings, I feel safer there than I do any other place on the planet. I feel connected. Um, I feel purposeful. I feel uh, we laugh, we cry, we support each other. I've shared my darkest secrets, and it's been met with love and compassion, and other people have opened up to me about their things. And when you see somebody once a week that you share that bond with, and you hug each other, and it's... Or you make a fucked up joke and you both, you know, laugh your ass off. It's it's what I wanted my whole life. I used to think that a safe future was going to come from me being exceptional in what I did professionally. And it led me to being the most despondent, suicidal, financially successful as I've ever been. And I'm glad I hit that dead end. Because I didn't realize that there was a spiritual, not religious, but a spiritual emptiness inside me because all I cared about was myself. And I needed this cross to bear, I believe, to be able to have to connect to other people and learn how to be vulnerable. But it it is the most beautiful gift in the ugliest wrapping paper. Right. I mean, you're talking about how a deep, dark crisis can change a person's, their course so fundamentally and lead to positive things that you never could have imagined. But what one thing that I, the way I see it is that many people suffer and have that crisis, but keep it so closed up that and and think that if I just brush it under the rug and try to move on as if it didn't happen, it's a new day, so I don't have to go there, that you miss out on that opportunity and 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 maybe worse. So it, it doesn't necessarily always go that way. I think it depends on what happens in the during the crisis and after that crisis in terms of talking about it openly. Yes. And that's that's really the key to everything else that can come next. And having patience with the process, realizing that it's not linear, it's a lot of two steps forward, one step back, but the overall momentum will be forward. And a lot of times what feels like the mistakes, quote unquote, along the way, um, can be uh, a learning experience that can not only benefit us in the long run because we gain wisdom about maybe how to decide who to let in, who to be vulnerable around, uh, but we're able to share that with somebody else and say, gosh, that person in your life that feels like your best friend, the way they talk to you is really kind of uh, mean or let's look at their actions. Uh, you know, this, I would call this a toxic person. You might want to rethink your relationship with them. And if you hadn't opened up to somebody who was toxic and, you know, you had a bad experience with it, you wouldn't be able to share with them, God, here's this moment in recovery I had that felt like, oh, recovery doesn't work. But in hindsight, no, it just refined my ability to kind of get a gauge of who's safe and and who isn't. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right. That That is a key thing that I would say. If you're somebody who has been thinking about 
talking about your experience of either being suicidal, of an attempt, or of losing someone to suicide, or other mental health experiences for that matter. I would say take it slow and pick individuals who are very trustworthy and you know that they can handle it and they don't, they have a level of understanding that is probably different from the average person. Um, we at AFSP, we actually even created a resource to help people prepare, especially if they were going to start speaking publicly about these experiences so that they were emotionally ready for it because there can be a bit of a, um, a, an unexpected emotional emotional oh, yeah. experience later um, if you're not quite ready for it. Yes. Um, so, you know, just being sort of understanding that big picture and then also understanding some of the pragmatic implications. If you talk about, you know, your, your experience with depression or PTSD or a suicide attempt and your workplace isn't yet ready for that, doesn't understand that mental health is a part of health and right. therefore should have the exact same approach as any health condition the would. flu or yes. diabetes, right. whatever. Yep. Yeah. Um, we're in a time of transition. So some workplaces are amazing that way, and others are not quite there yet. Yeah. So you want to just set things up in a way that it's going to go really well for you and, of course, that, that you provide a safe and effective, um, hopeful message for other people. So what are some tips for that, or where is a resource where people can learn tips for that? Yeah, if you go to AFSP.org, you'll find a whole lot of resources, including how to tell your story. And, and it's a resource. That's, that's what it's called. But some of the tips in there are, you know, just kind of taking some time to reflect and think through what is it going to feel like on the other side of that public speaking event. Um, Am I going to be okay with a level of disclosure, especially if this is the first time? You know, many people get very accustomed to. Right. So, so you mean it. this just could be one on one with your boss when you say public speaking event? You don't mean oh. at a lectern in front of two hundred people. Well, it could be both. Right. the The resource we made was specifically for speaking at public events because okay. we have so many, you know, out of the darkness walks I and see. opportunities to elevate the conversation about suicide and mental health through the combination of personal storytelling along with some you know chunky education about right. what the science tells us and and what's actionable you know what anyone can do to play a role in suicide prevention it is a there is a hunger like this like never before it is really amazing yeah um any any other uh tips for somebody um who is afraid to open up, um, be it at, in the workplace or just in general. They're, they're suffering. They are replaying uh, the idea of suicide over and over in their brain. Maybe they're getting close to making a plan. Right. If, if you're in a place where you're actively struggling with whether you're going to stay alive or not, I would not go into this space of talking to anyone who is risky at all. Non-crisis yeah, people. Exactly. Um, you know, non-healthcare professionals and or people who have proven themselves to be very trustworthy and, and capable of, of going to that place with you and tolerating it and just checking back in with you. Um, How about the guy who operates the tilt-a-whirl? Would he not be somebody to open up to? <laughs> 
<laughs> what if he looks trustworthy he, and he runs well, a nice ride? You never know. He might have his own experiences in all likelihood. As General, our, if as he our data works at the shows. carnival, yes, there is some fucked up shit in his background. No, well, I'm really <laughs> talking about the whole population. So we did this Harris poll um, at AFSP along with the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention. And we surveyed 2,000 American adults, and it turns out that 55% of individuals have either had an experience of loss to suicide, not necessarily in their close family, but in their community or their network, or they have thought of suicide, or they've attempted, or a loved one has struggled in those ways. So we are talking about the majority of individuals. Yes. Um, you know, the prevalence of these experiences of having a thought about taking one's life. I mean, there are the, the prevalence, especially among youth of suicidal ideation, it's about one in five within a 12 month period will think of suicide. It doesn't mean that they're, they take it any further, but it could indicate that there's risk of suicide there. So we just, we need in a way, to me, what suicide prevention is all about, it's facing these facts that are all around us, whether we want to go there or not, but those of us who are equipped and wired to do it can help lead um, into a space where everyone can get comfortable enough so that just like you would do, hopefully, if you saw somebody bleeding and you, you know, first general first aid, that people would know how to have this kind of caring conversation that's essentially like mental health first aid. Okay. So there were times when I, more common than the I need to kill myself was the, oh, fuck, I didn't die in my sleep again. I just don't want to be alive. I don't want to kill myself. Address that space, which I think so many of us live in. And it's such a prison. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you're really talking about what the clinical term for it is passive suicidal ideation, that wish that something could just end my life without me having to actively um, pursue that. I used and, to love turbulence on planes because mm -hmm. I would think, oh, please do it for me. Right. And that turns out to be as serious as thoughts that are more active about, you know, finding your own method. So you're suicidal and lazy. That's what you're saying. <laughs> no, I think our minds just are do certain things based on lots of different factors. And it is really fascinating. I mean, the most encouraging thing to me is that that does exist. That does exist for many people. For some people, it'll be a short experience. And for other people, it'll be a longer term experience. But that there is a way through that, beyond that, to something new and different for, for many. Now, for some, their brains will keep on that path. And again, then it's more this question of how do I manage that? How Tools. do I remind myself mm -hmm. that that is my brain taking me there, but that does not have to be the way I choose to respond or to see myself. Very hard to, to sort of grapple with your own internal yes. machinery of your brain. Yes. But people are, people can do it. Yeah. And, and that is the heart of, of, uh, the thinking of an addict or an alcoholic is it, it is a way of viewing 
reality that is, that is warped and will be there forever, but we get better at catching it and seeing, oh, okay, this is, this is not reality. This is my, you know, my, one of my thousand fears, uh, warping this situation. And I just need to let go right here and not try to future trip and, you know, be a control freak. Um, which I think is hard for people who have had their trust violated as children. It's very hard to let go and say, okay, you know, let's, this is just my mind, uh, or my central nervous system, um, in fight or flight mode or, you know, whatever. Yes. What, whatever it is. Yeah. And I think people learn different tools of how to respond to that in the most effective way that kind of makes sense for them. And those are tools that people sometimes find on their own or they find through cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. Since you brought that up, that is the quintessential mm-hmm. evidence based treatment that helps people empowers them with their own cognitive tools. Yes. And, and it's not just, it could be what you think and say to yourself. It also could be what you do to kind of reboot your brain into a new space that is more healthy and seeing the big picture. Yeah. You know, people learn what that will, what does that for them? Right. Uh, and dialectical behavior therapy, yes. another huge, huge tool, especially for people with borderline personality disorder. Yes, yes, um, absolutely. Can you talk about that a little mm-hmm. bit? Sure. I mean, DBT um, is so remarkable and so powerful for certainly for people with borderline personality disorder. Certainly, if somebody has attempted suicide, DBT is one of a handful of the most powerfully suicide risk reducing treatments. It's been studied for, like you mentioned, people with borderline personality disorder, but also people with substance use disorders, eating disorders. It's been studied in adolescents who have attempted. And now there's even a study of DBT for prepubescent children aged seven to 12 who have dysregulated mood disorder. Mm-hmm. And um, DBT not only works with the person so that they can learn new emotion and behavioral regulation skills. Instead of outbursts mm-hmm. or withdrawing yes. or self-hating in isolation. Mm-hmm. Yep, there's some there's some strategies that involve mindfulness and just pausing before reacting and then beyond that, other strategies and actually skills that they'll practice and use. But the beautiful thing, especially in the case of these adolescent and, and children approach with DBT, is that it's all about that with the person and with the family unit and yes. with parents and skills-based. Communication. So that, right. You leave therapy and you go back to your home environment. And can you be in a place that is also supporting those same types of um, skills mm-hmm. and practices or is it actually the space that triggers you more? Because, of course, as the parent, it's extraordinarily stressful to have a child or a teen who is thinking of suicide, who's reacting emotionally in outbursts or attempting suicide. Nothing more stressful than that. And so that requires working with the parents as well. So anyway, DBT yes. is is phenomenal. And from what I understand... Uh, some policemen even use it in, in attempting to de-escalate situations where uh, someone is being potentially violent. And uh, I, from what I understand, it's a way of letting that person know that you hear them, you understand 
where they're coming from, but here's a different uh, point of view or here's how I want to help you. So it sounds like you're inviting each other to be a part of your team when this conflict is happening rather than there's going to be a victor and a, and a vanquished uh, in this situation, which I would imagine is where all escalation happens is, yes. is feeling like we are pitted against each other ra- rather than, hey, let's make sure that, that there's not a misunderstanding here because uh, I think I might understand where you're coming from more than you think I do. Or if you're the person who is upset, instead of lashing out and saying, you know, I hate you, you're the worst person in the world, um, saying, uh, I'm feeling really frightened Right now, I'm feeling really frustrated. Uh, I feel like nobody cares about me or that you're not interested in me, um, et cetera, et cetera. And yes, uh, I know in my own life that has helped me in relationships when I just want to explode or isolate to be able to express what I'm feeling rather than pointing fingers. Yes, and I'm so glad you brought up that sort of coming on the same team and working together because even in treatment you would think that you'd think that therapists or counselors are trained that way and and many are but when it comes to the suicide topic sometimes that can go um in a different direction because it's so anxiety provoking for the therapist yeah. and they need they go into the mode of listing out their questions of the suicide risk assessment. Well, the person has just shared something incredibly private, Mm -hmm. maybe risky, and now they're being sort of grilled with a series of questions. Which is not what they need in that moment. Right, right. And so um, there are approaches that are really coming out now into the clinical space to help therapists, help doctors understand that there's a better way to allow the person to tell their story and then to do the suicide risk assessment. And even there's some brief short-term treatment modalities. I'll mention one called, it's abbreviated CAMS, the Collaborative Assessment and Management of Suicidality, which was meant to just bridge a brief period of time between the time of discharge from a psychiatric unit or the emergency department, let's say after a suicide attempt, after Mm -hmm. a person has attempted until they have time to get connected to outpatient care. So it was designed for this sort of bridging period, um, which is actually a very important time frame for people who are at risk for suicide. But it's turned into a more broad-reaching treatment approach where the therapist literally sits next to the client and they work through reasons for living and reasons for dying. They use kind of um, a, a series of things that they look at together. And the idea is that the patient is through some motivational interviewing types of approaches is engaged that part of them that is holding on to hope that wants to stay safe and they can engage in that process together and and work on what are your triggers you know can we can we use a safety plan that's a very um common practice these days that's very important that everyone should know about a safety plan if if you've never heard of it and you're somebody um, who does hit some crisis points or suicidal thinking. It's something you could even learn about yourself. But therapists could use it, but other peer-to-peer, it's being used in all sorts of different ways where the person engages in what are my triggers, 
What are my best practices that I can use skills internally? Who can I count on outside of myself? Who can I call? And how do I keep my environment safe? And these are things that individuals will engage with. So this is, I mean, it seems so basic. And yet in the treatment scenario, that has not always been assumed that a person is willing or able to do that. And certainly in some circumstances, people aren't when, when they're acutely at risk. But it's far more than, than people may have realized. You know, as you were sharing the the image of the therapist sitting next to the person, you know, the other thought that occurred to me was it is a fact on the ground for that person that they matter. Because yeah. I think when people are at their most suicidal, the belief is that we don't matter or even worse, that we're a burden, which I understand is a really common thought for people yes. who attempt. And um, what a what a great idea to, to have somebody. I mean, it's such common sense that in your moment of need, if you were injured on the battlefield, people wouldn't shout to you, hey, man, I hope your leg gets better. Right. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, it's absolutely so true, everything you're saying. And that, that if therapy is supposed to be therapeutic, but family members can also facilitate and be part of creating an environment that, number one, has to be aware that suicidal thoughts are happening. So that's the first thing, is we need mm -hmm. to get rid of that stigma so that we can talk about these things yes. in our homes and in our friendships. Um, and then to know that just a little bit of basic knowledge about where the mind can go, because I think many people, they're open-minded to the idea of mental health being real, but they don't understand necessarily that that means it's common for people when they get into whatever space it is, crisis, depression, um, that their mind will play tricks on them. They will convince themselves that that people are better off without them. Um, and so a lot of those myths that are out there, hopefully diminishing about suicide, just simply don't make sense if you understand some of these basic things about what a person is actually going through when they're in that state of, of crisis. Is there a different game plan for someone who is in suicidal ideation because they are you know, future tripping and extrapolating their fears in a vague kind of way. And someone who is in the present moment, perhaps dealing with chronic pain or something that it has nothing to do with them thinking about the future, the present, yeah. not based on future thoughts, the present is so painful. Well, you bring up the fact that people come to think about suicide in an infinite number of pathways and ways that get them there. So I think, you know, if you're, if you are a pain specialist working with people with chronic pain, a starting point would be to realize that suicidal ideation is very, very common in people who live with chronic pain because it is a load to carry and to process on a moment to moment basis for those individuals. So resilience does get worn down. Um, by definition, it doesn't, it's not a matter of strength of character. It, we are human. We're very right. dynamic in that way. Um, but I think the approach will ideally should be customized to what the person, and this again, back to the narrative, allowing people to tell their stories, 
that you have to actually understand how they got there rather than just thinking, oh, suicidal ideation. How do I fix it? Yep. Mm -hmm. This monolithic thing. That's really not understanding how to help the person best. So how do we, as let's say we're a loved one, somebody comes to us uh, with suicidal ideation, you know, the difference between somebody who's like, man, I'm so tired of being alive to, uh, you know, I just want to let you know that every day I'm out go- standing on a bridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And really and usually close. People won't hand it to you on a platter quite that clearly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they might and certainly. Um, but any hint around hopelessness, feeling trapped, overwhelmed or like a burden or if you're living with the person you know their day-to-day patterns of sleep eat energy socializing their favorite activities Um, as much as we do have free will as autonomous individuals our behavioral patterns are kind of like our 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 biological patterns in our body they they tend to stay in a narrow range unless something significant is causing a shift and so i really encourage people just trust your instinct if something seems off what is going to be the harm in having a caring check-in type of conversation and really even if they don't tell you everything that's going on starting the process of inviting it that that's part of the deal. Many people aren't ready to talk about these deeper things because it's not necessarily been part of the sort of, you know, pattern of your friendship or your relationship with them. But you can go there. And I think we oftentimes don't go there because we don't know what to say. And we get nervous. We're not sure if it's going to offend the person. And so then the next thing we do is we rationalize not even saying mm-hmm. anything. We say, oh, they're just stressed because something's going on in their life. Well, guess what? There's always something going on in life. But if you notice something, it's probably significant enough to ask about. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it seems like the things that you shared, the hesitations that the person has, that it would be fine to preface w- with those things and remind the person that you care about them. You know, I, I, I care about you, and um, I've just been—I uh, could be making it up, but it seems like you're withdrawing a lot. And um, forgive me if I'm, you know, being nosy. Um, I just—is there anything that you want to talk about? And I, and I hope I'm not being rude or offending you. But again, I care about you. And I just want you to know I'm here to to listen and help you in any way I, that I can. Absolutely, hundred percent. And you, the key thing I would say is, as you said, be direct. Say, I care about you, and I'm here to support you. I want to understand if stuff is going on in your life because I've noticed X, Y, and Z and just be that direct. Cause if mm-hmm. they are in distress and now you're approaching them in this new and sort of weird, different way, mm-hmm. their mind's going to start going, what, what's happening? Are here? they judging me? Are they mm-hmm. going to tell other people? Yes. Yeah. So if you just lay it out clearly and you have to say the things that are in your head, mm-hmm. like I'm not going to judge you. Right. I am really interested in supporting you because I care about you. You know, maybe I'm not that's, trying to embarrass you. 
Exactly. Right. But I think, you know, I think we would probably apologize more than we need to. Yes. If you, it's almost the kind of thing that you need to just kind of like make your little talking points and just stick to it and be direct and say, yes. I, I'd really want to have this conversation with you because I care about you. And, um, you know, I've noticed X, Y, and Z. Mm. Would you feel comfortable talking to me about what's been happening in your life? Mm. And it's really that, this is not going to be the language of mental health symptoms. This is going to be the conversation of what is going on in their life. And it's going to be the way that they talk about that, that you have to be listening for those cues of, as I mentioned, hopelessness, feeling trapped or like a burden, or that the stress is affecting their physical body. That many of us, we all have physical bodies. Our brain is part of the physical body and we do experience stress, depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction in very physical ways. So again, which then affects the thinking and absolutely the actions. And it's this that's right big circle. It is. I mean, you have to realize that the person is if they're in a state of distress or crisis, they're not necessarily having access to all of their usual sense of humor, creative problem solving, you know, those things might be sort of dismantled and put off, locked up in a room that they will access later. But right now, understand that there is something different, that a force at work, that you can be, just by being a listening ear and being supportive, you can help normalize what they're going through in a sense, at least normalize the experience of talking about it, mm-hmm. and and be possibly a stepping stone that helps lead them to the next positive thing that's going to help them. I would continue to be a friend, just like you would check in with a friend who's going through a hard time about anything, you know, grief or financial hardships or whatever. A good friend tends to remember that and asks about it when they see the person next or might go out of their way to reach out and ask about it. We absolutely need to remember to do that when it comes to these deeper sharing conversations, because when they do happen and the person never checks in again, it's a very weird message that that sends to the person. Yes. You know, like, ooh, maybe that wasn't okay with them and... Um, you're, you're, and again, all those negative distortions is the person's kind of left to sort of spin that out yes. into a different place. Uh, something that that I've heard people share as well is, um, if that person is stuck in that place of immobility and hopelessness, um, to offer to help find a therapist to drive yes. them to their yep. first appointment, to sit in the waiting room and wait for them, um, to yeah. to. To aid them in a way that isn't you trying to fix them. Right. And in a way, if you are that kind of friend, if they had a broken leg or were going in for same-day surgery that you would offer to drive, it is exactly the same then for this mental health piece. I, I think that can be a guidepost. People will often wonder, like, especially in the workplace or in friendships, in a family, well, how do I approach this? Because it all is so tangled up and, and it feels very overwhelming. And the, the family members' emotions are getting triggered as well. And I think a very grounding principle is, what would you do if there were an acute physical health crisis right now? Yeah. 
um, you would come around, you would support, you would make sure that their, their immediate medical needs are being met, and then you would follow up. And so whatever your relationship allows for in that kind of space, mm-hmm. same thing for mental health. Yeah. And I would say the same thing applies for people who have lost a loved one to suicide. So often, even in the, this day and age, when things have changed dramatically, um, or at least that movement is growing in yeah. huge numbers in terms of people being so much more open and taking the stigma out of suicide. And if that's the cause of death, calling it what it is. And, you know, people will even use the term, by the way, of I lost my loved one to his depression or to his addiction. And, and going there in terms of the route that they believe right. drove the suicide, that's, that's helpful too. But again, for the community and friends, to not support that person in a moment of intense, complex grief is just, it's frankly inhumane. And probably shame. Yeah. You, you know, yes. this survivor guilt of, right. I shoulda, shoulda, shoulda. Yes. Which is never mm-hmm. the case. Right. Um, correct? Yeah, that, that search for why is a given after a loss to suicide has occurred. Because, of course, your mind is going to try to reconstruct everything that happened. What did I miss? And here's the deal with, with suicide death. All of us see one slice of the pie. And we only see a very limited portion of that slice. And the, the truth is very hard, which is that no one will probably ever have access to the full story, certainly not internally what the person was experiencing, nor the possible long-term risk factors that were starting to erupt and come to bear based on an interaction that happens between multiple risk factors that lead to that death. So, um, so the why search can be extremely obsessional and excruciating for many. Um, let alone the shame, the self-blaming, you know, the blaming all around. But needless to say, it's it's a time with lots of mixture of emotions. And so as a friend, you don't have to figure all that out. You don't even have to go there. You can just say, I'm here for you. You can bring them food like you normally would if somebody loses a loved one. Um, and you can, you can say the, the person's name who died. So oftentimes people just don't touch it. And the, the family members, some of them, some lost survivors really want to remember their loved one. They want to talk about their yes. life. They want to remember them for what they were in their life, not yes. just by the way they died. Yes. But, um, something that we did, uh, when I was married, my, um, mother-in-law died and, after the funeral, we watched home movies of her, and it was so soothing to yes. just remember how much she made us laugh, how much she laughed at herself, and it it was it was really it was really great. Yes, yes, and that same thing can happen after a suicide death, even though it for a period it will be very complicated and wrapped up around yes. the way that the person died. Yes. And address, I, I, God, I don't know what to say, because um, I, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I, I'm just, I can't imagine how much pain you're in, and um, um, the biggest mistake that I hear people make is they want to try to f- change what that person is feeling. Well, you know, you still have three other children. Right. Or you have this beautiful home. 
Yes. Or yes. it's... These platitudes and sort of people trying to come up with something, I think it is far better to say, I like you said, I can't imagine what you are going through, but I do want to be here for you. Yeah. And I'm not going to stay away. I'm, I'm going to be here. Yeah. Um, just showing up is a key principle for suicide grief, that period, as well as for after a suicide attempt. That's another period where sometimes family members and friends don't know what to do. And they're so afraid of triggering them into a bad place again. They don't know what to talk about. Mm-hmm. But come around. You can sit with the person, talk with them, be silent, follow their cues. Ask them, how do we have conversations that are helpful to you, where you are right now, and whatever you need? Many people um, who are in a place to be able to actually process what happened and how did I end up attempting, their their path, while not linear, is, is something of a recovery experience. And if you're, look, no one's going to be perfect as the, you know, family and friends around that because you can't read the person's mind, but you can communicate in a loving and non-judgmental way mm-hmm. that's respectful of their space while you take care of yourself too. Because again, this is very triggering for family yes. members, but to try to be sort of intelligent about what is your boundary of taking care of your own needs and not really putting that on right. each other both ways. Uh, the other uh, common uh, mistake that I hear people make, and I I know I've been guilty of this, is um, let me know if there's anything you need, which is really our way of giving ourselves an out, making ourselves look like a good person. Um, I should just speak for myself. Uh, something that I try to do instead now because I know as the the other person, I already feel like a burden. So I'm not going to pick up the phone and say, I haven't been able to cook for myself. Right. Or uh, I've been crying all day and I just really want somebody to, I just need a shoulder to lay my head on. What I try to do now is I say, I would love to bring you food on Tuesday afternoon. Would it be okay if I did that? And I think that things like that are help concrete things yes. with a day mm-hmm. in mind and letting the person know that you want to do that. Right, right. You're taking the initiative. They're not having to expend the energy to try to decide anything other than say, yes, thank you. Yes. That would be helpful. Yeah, and and I'd like to hang out with you. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I mean this is this is hard, but I think these are definitely the the guiding principles to show up and not avoid mm-hmm. to ask um can I do such and such and please do feel free to tell me if there if that's not what you need. Um you know to just be open to that kind of dialogue but understanding that this is a moment where the person is not their 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 energy is being taken up by something else especially if this is suicide loss grief mm-hmm. it's a very very intense grieving period and and resist the urge to make it about you yeah 
Right. Which for narcissists like me, it's very hard. Well, I think it's hard for everybody. Everyone lives in their own heads and their own walkings and in their own shoes. And, you know, you, you want to be helpful, but we don't, we haven't always been conditioned by our families or our cultural norms in our, you know, neighborhoods, wherever we are in the world to know what that looks like. We've lost the art of just connecting. It's just, I think it's, and we have to find ways to counter that. Yeah. And, and I think that's why in part this conversation around deep authenticity with this human experience that can intersect with mental health, can intersect with a lot of things is so important that we model that, that we promote that, that we help people who don't, they want to, but they're not sure. Mm-hmm. And it's so much easier to just stay with the status quo and stay locked yes. up. Um, but to invite that change to happen, that is such a beautiful thing. And, and it is amazing to see that happening around the country in so many different ways. Uh, how do we know if somebody we care about is considering suicide how do we know when to just be the ear to listen to them and when to call yeah for help right like as yes. in uh, you know 911 or yes, yes. what what are the resources what I think if if you are having this dialogue and the person is not just having thoughts of I'd be better off dead or I'm thinking of this method and you know that they have access to that method and they are not giving you any indication of a different way of thinking or coping. I In that moment, I would be very seriously trying to make sure that either that day or very shortly thereafter, they're getting connected with a mental health professional or even their primary care doctor. That's another way that you can go if it's just there is like it's hard to get in with a mental health person right away, which is true in so many places. But really, I would reserve calling 911 um, for a period where they are actively harming themselves or they are in the process. Um, because what can happen when the police show up and that process can be so traumatizing that, and shaming, yeah. Yes. And and there is a time for it because certainly you want to save a life. Mm. That's first priority. Um, with, the, with the caveat in all this being that even clinicians can't predict suicide risk. Really, there's, there's no science that tells us how to do that. The suicide risk assessment helps, but it's more like just connecting and following up mm-hmm. and getting them onto a long-term path of, of deeper kind of recovery. So... So I really would encourage people that getting the police involved um, is to be avoided unless there is an imminent current threat okay. to life and to safety. Now, bringing them to a local ER can be an option um, if you're just really not sure and you're very, very worried, um, especially if they'll go with you. Oh, okay. Um, if they won't go with you, um, obviously if, you can't bring them to an ER. Right. If they won't, then what I would do, if they're not actively harming themselves right now, 
and not about to mm-hmm. momentarily, I would call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline as the helper, friend, mm-hmm. and get their guidance. They'll talk to you. They'll talk to the person of concern if they will talk to the, mm-hmm. the trained counselor at the lifeline. And they will help you figure out where is this at? What needs to happen now? The lifeline, the crisis text line. So let me give you those the ways to access them. And we'll put all the links to all of this under the show notes for this episode. Right. The lifeline is 1-800-273-TALK. And the crisis text line for people who prefer to text than to get on the phone is text the word TALK to 741-741. And 24-7, these systems are actively having dialogue. And so they will respond to you. Yes. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. such and such. What's what's going on yes and and as i mentioned you can be the helping person to get some guidance in a in an acute moment where you're not really sure like you're saying is this an imminent threat to their safety or not in the vast majority of cases if that conversation has been helpful and they've they've shared with you some and there's a plan moving forward um, and ways to check in with each other that is the way to go Certainly, if they'll take a referral or if you can drive them to see their doctor or to a therapist, help them find one, all those things are excellent. And if you're not sure how to find a mental health professional, there are links on our website for that as well. If you go to Mm AFSP.org and find support, there are a couple of treatment finder links, Mm -hmm. um, both for mental health conditions and one specifically for substance use problems. Okay, great. Uh, there's so many other questions that I want to ask you about psychiatry and medication, but I think I'm going to wait till you are in town and we'll do a, a return episode if you would be uh, kind enough to come be a, a, a guest again. It sounds great. Uh, I'm so glad that uh, we were able to do this and thanks for taking the time out and uh, sharing such such great information. Thank you. Thanks for what you do and your work. It's amazing. Cannot wait to get her back on the uh, on the podcast. Let's get to some great surveys. Um, and if you guys have never filled out surveys, anybody that's new to the show, I know Apple Podcasts uh, is uh, featuring um, the podcast on their homepage uh, this week. And many, many thanks to them. Um, so if you're a new listener, go fill out the um, the surveys. They're on our website, mentalpod.com. And it really helps us get to know you, the listener, and you guys have some amazing stories and thoughts and insights and feelings to share. I want to give a shout out to our sponsor for today's episode, Myro. It is a natural deodorant. Uh, I've used natural deodorants in the past, and when I was approached about them sponsoring the show, I thought, oh God, I I don't know, because the two natural deodorants I tried in the past did not work and were not kind to me, but especially to people around me. But I thought, you know what? I will try it. And it works. I love the scent uh, that they that they have. Um, I love how it, they've minimized the amount of plastic that you waste. There's nothing toxic in it. No aluminum, no parabens. Um, there's a, a little uh, barley extract in there to to keep you dry. There's essential oils. It's they they really thought this this through. And I was in the garage for six hours, and when I came out of it, uh, I smelled dare I say, fresh. <laughs> so check out Myro. It's um, 
Well, first of all, you can get 50% off your first order uh, if you uh, go today. And uh, it's just five bucks. Five bucks. So visit mymyro.com slash mental and use the promo code mental. That's mymyro.com slash mental. Uh, and that's spelled M-Y- M-Y-R-O dot com slash mental and use the promo code mental for 50% off your first order, which is just five bucks. Crazy. Uh, oh, and I should also mention that it is, uh, you can do it as a monthly subscription, which is so cool. So cool. Uh, they ship it right to your door uh, every three months. All right. This is an awful moment filled out by Bees Are Coming, and she writes, I moved out of my apartment this year to stay with my parents. I moved to the apartment originally to get away from my parents. My mom is emotionally abusive, and my dad tells uh, tactless things. My dad, I think there's a typo here. My dad says tactless things in regard to my mental illness. The apartment seemed fine, but things quickly deteriorated when I got to know my neighbors. I'm a quiet person and fairly clean. I have severe social anxiety and agoraphobia and keep to myself. My neighbors moved in shortly after I did and promptly asked me if they could join my Netflix account until they could get their own. I was already sharing the account, and I don't trust people, so I apologetically told them they couldn't. Good for you, by the way. A week later, they asked if I want to join them for a bonfire in the shared yard. I lied that I would try to make it because I'm terrified to say no to people. I hid in my apartment with the blinds closed while they proceeded with their bonfire that evening, feeling like a cunt. I've gone over these incidents with my friend and counselor, and they say it's okay if I don't want to share my Netflix account and if I don't want to socialize. Still, I'm convinced I messed things up and, inve- and instigated their behavior. Shortly after the bonfire, the neighbors moved their garage bin up onto the veranda beside my door. I had been at the end of the driveway. It had been at the end of the driveway previously. My dad saw this and put it back in its original place, telling them not to put their garbage bin by my door. They then threw litter all around the building. It's an old house converted into two apartments, which progressed to them leaving bags of trash on the veranda a few feet away from my door. They would stomp and swear loud enough that it startled me, and the husband, or boyfriend, effectively scared the shit out of me when out of the blue he stormed outside and began punching their front door while glaring at me through my window. They often leave various items, a toy truck, a full bottle of vinegar, on the stairs leading up to the veranda, which are in front of my door. On my way out of the apartment one day, I saw a small paper cup upside down on the top step. I kicked it aside, and there was a tiny dollop of poop underneath. You cannot make this shit up. And I love that it was a dollop. I love the idea that somebody is menacing and dainty. Oh, yeah, he used to stab people, but when he did, he always extended his pinky. And then he bowed. Or maybe, who knows, maybe they're not dainty. Maybe he was constipated. You should just put a big a big box of bran in front of his door. I'm assuming it's him. Who knows, maybe it's her. Thank you for that. This is a shame and secret survey, and this was filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself 
big hair, brown eyes. She's straight in her 30s, raised in a stable and safe environment. Um, we'll see about that. <laughs> Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, I was 13 and someone, possibly my grandfather, entered the room and molested me. I pretended I was asleep but was awake for the eternity it felt like. As soon as they left, I stayed up all night trying to convince myself that I enjoyed it or maybe it really didn't happen. Uh, she's been physically abused and emotionally abused. I had several relationships when I was pushed, punched, slapped, kicked. Plenty of those relationships, I was ma- manipulated into doing things I didn't want to, either it be physically or financially. My mother really emotionally abused me in a way that I constantly felt apart from my siblings. I wonder why she would say it was a stable and safe environment. Um, If you've been abused, are there positive experiences with the abusers? My mother and I now have a great relationship. I understand a lot of the shit she was dealing with as a a very young mother uh, in her own chaotic relationship with my father. Darkest thoughts. I regret being a mother. I really hate it. Thank you for saying that. Not that I'm happy that, that you're regretting it, but because I know there are other parents out there who feel that and are ashamed to admit that they have that feeling. Uh, No one tells you that there is a culture of moms that you are now now a part of. I'm now a stay-at-home mom that is antisocial by choice. I can't handle the pressure of judgment that could be given if your kid is having an asshole moment. Before I became a mother, I worked full-time. I was very social. Uh, I was a makeup artist that made people feel good about themselves. Now I'm in a role where I have an endless amount of patience. I have to have an endless amount of patience, keep a clean home, make meals 90% of the month. I had just gotten okay with myself before I made the choice to get pregnant. Darkest secrets. In my late 20s, in a two-month up, I I guess that must be a term, um, like a I wonder if that means like uh, mania. I drank away my paychecks, was very promiscuous, sometimes offering my company for rent or spending money. Uh, Sexual fantasies most powerful to to you? None. Um, What, if anything, do you wish for? To be able to afford mental health care. It, It is really one of the biggest outrages in our society in this quote-unquote greatest nation on earth um, that people can't afford decent medical health care. We can, we can bomb around the world, give tax breaks to billionaires and corporations, and I understand there are economic necessities and realities, but come on. Have you shared these things with others? I had a series of talks with my mother over the years that helped me get over our past. It went well. I'm able to see her as just a young woman in an awful situation, and the way she dealt with it wasn't always the best. And then after writing all this down, she feels sad. Well, I, from what I've read, who wouldn't, who wouldn't feel that way? And 
it's so good that you've been able to reconnect with your mom. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, man, it would be so great if they had support groups for mothers where they could get together and take the masks off and get real about what they're feeling, what they're experiencing, their insecurities, their fear of judgments. Um, maybe one exists. But thank you for sharing that. This is an awful moment filled out by White Rabbit. And uh, she writes, My husband and I were recently surprised to find out I'm pregnant. My husband is an only child, and we both knew his mother would be ecstatic to hear the news. She is quite an alternate alternate kind of lady in every sense of the world. I don't know why this matter with my mouth today. She's anti-vax and into natural remedies, uh, cleans rooms by blowing into shell horns, and enjoys spending her holidays visiting a guru in India. She had several miscarriages after my husband was born and has remained deeply traumatized by them. We turned up at her house with cake and flowers to tell her our news. She cried with joy and said she, quote, already knew because of a vision she had while meditating. After collecting herself, she sat down at the kitchen table and said, is it okay if I smoke? While quickly lighting her cigarette, taking a deep, relaxing draw and blowing the smoke across the table at us. My dad was, thank you for that, by the way, my dad was the most clueless smoker. He would, he and I um, worked at the same insurance company for uh, a couple of years, and we would take the train train home together, and he would stand at the train doors, and it was a packed rush hour train. As soon as the doors would open, he would take one step onto the platform, Didn't wasn't even aware that other people were having to squeeze around him to get past him, and he would immediately light his cigarette. And then the, the whole line of people would back up to where the turnstiles were. And so you would be just like sardines. And he would be smoking his cigarette absolutely unaware of all the smoke going in people's faces six inches from his. And they would like turn around and look at him like, buddy, what the fuck? And I just, I just remember just marveling at how out of touch somebody could be with what was going on around them. And sadly, I have inherited a little bit of that from him. Um, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Liz. And she writes, Last year, I entered my first relationship with someone I had met at a friend's wedding. When I say my first relationship, I really do mean my first relationship. I'd gone 27 years without so much as holding hands with someone of the opposite sex. Obviously, I'd never been kissed, and I certainly never had sex. I was, and still am, extremely self-conscious about it. 
I'm hyper aware that my V card had a much later expiration date than most. I informed my partner that I was a virgin on our third or fourth date to give him a chance to escape, but he thankfully was very understanding and non-judgmental and assured me that we could go at my pace. Maybe it's just me, but I have never had a male friend say to me, I really like her, but she's a virgin. Never. Never heard that. I've heard guys brag. Uh, the time eventually came for us to give sex a try. Before we went out to dinner one night, we went to his room. We started fooling around a bit and things progressed. Naturally, I was extremely nervous. What would this feel like? Will it hurt? Will this change me somehow? What if I do something wrong? Where on earth do I put my hands? I love that question. My anxiety only increased as time went by, and he continued to struggle to push into my body. It was like he was colliding with a brick wall. Needless to say, the attempt was ultimately unsuccessful, and we decided to throw in the towel and head out to make our dinner reservation. Ashamed, self-conscious, and feeling like a total sexual letdown, I stood up from the bed and embraced my boyfriend. I suddenly felt something dripping down my leg. Is that you? I asked, perplexed. Then we looked to see blood streaming down my legs, pooling on his floor, his bed, and into the dress pants and socks around my ankles. I wanted to evaporate. I was mortified, convinced that he would go running for the hills and wouldn't want to ever see me again. But to my astonishment, he didn't freak out. He calmly helped me clean up and get the blood out of my clothes. He assured me that everything was okay as I stood in his shower, repeatedly apologizing and telling him how embarrassed I was. We went to dinner, albeit a bit late for our reservation, with me in my horribly uncomfortable, wet, and thankfully dark gray pants. As horrifying as this experience was, I knew that I had found someone truly special that night. He is so understanding, has been extremely patient and supportive of me as I work towards recovery from anxiety, OCD, depression, and anorexia. I am so grateful to have met someone who accepts me as I am. I never thought that that would happen for me. Before I met him, I had all but resigned myself to the fact that I would be alone forever and no one would ever deal with me and all my problems. But now I'm learning that that's not true and I can be loved, flaws and all. P.S. I am happy to report that we now have a very healthy sex life and often look back on this experience and laugh. And then P.S.S. Thank you so much for the podcast. Paul, a friend of mine at my eating disorder treatment facility, recommended it to me, and I'm so glad she did. We love you. I've got my boyfriend hooked as well. I hope you realize how important your work is and what a great impact you have. Thank you for saying that, and thank you for your beautiful survey. Um, it's, um, I don't think we see enough examples of men like your boyfriend. Not that they don't exist, but, um, you know, I think, I think a lot of times, both genders and gender fluid people, all people, we we tend to just hear the horror stories about dating, and a lot of times we don't we don't hear stories of the support 
and the understanding and the compassion and the patience. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by a girl you can take home to mother. And she writes, realizing that for the last few months, I've been living a tranquil, contented life without constantly comparing every second of happiness to the hell that came before. For me, recovery was not the sigh of relief that came after years of uncontrollable anxiety and depression, because for months after I got a handle on those issues, I still kept grasping for every moment of joy I could find in a desperate kind of way. I think to make up for all that I'd failed to appreciate about my life before. I've been hungry for even a tiny bit of peace and obsessed over it once I found it. No, that was not recovery. But going for months without dwelling on my previous struggles with mental illness and just soaking up the good things in my life without another thought, that's recovery. Thank you for that. And... I love, first of all, I love this survey because it's such a great example of all the nuanced progressions in recovery. And I would say that actually that is part of the, recu- the recovery, the um, soaking it up, you know, the feeling like we're making up for lost time. Um, but I understand what you're saying, um, that it's, that it's not the, that it doesn't end there. And, and you turned a light bulb on in my head because I think I still do that a lot and worry, oh, when's the, you know, when's the depression going to come back? Or um, just go into kind of meta self-obsession. Um, this is a babysitter survey filled out by a woman uh, who calls herself Fragmented Heart. And she writes, uh, I was 13 years old when my younger sister and I were babysat by a couple, a woman with young children and her boyfriend who was maybe in his 40s. They lived in a tiny beat-up shack and I was sleeping on the floor next to the bed, which doubled as their living room couch. I almost convinced myself he hadn't touched me, but cannot get the sensation of waking up to the vigorous rubbing of my pubic mound uh, out of my head and his utterly cowardly footsteps as he panicked and scampered away to the bed just a few feet away. I'll never forget that I almost convinced myself that it hadn't happened. I was in so much shock, but it did happen. I was asleep. He knew it was wrong, the fucking bastard. I woke my younger sister and walked her all the way back to our house in the wee hours of the morning before anyone else woke up. Later on, I learned that he was also molesting his girlfriend's children. Their mother burst into our house weeks or months later, bawling her eyes out, wailing about how her boyfriend had molested her kids. I can't imagine the levels of heartbreaking guilt she must have felt, must still feel. And by the way, thank God she believed them. I read so many of these fucking surveys where the parent denies it. And many people say that that is even more traumatizing to them than the original event. Um, I grew up in a tiny, isolated Alaskan village that cannot be reached by road, only boat or airplane. Christian missionaries dumped their pedophiles in remote Alaskan villages as a way of dot, 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 safeguarding them, question mark, protecting them, question mark. How fucking ironic. As much as I hate my sexual abuser, I cannot help but think 
that somehow he must have been abused as well. And yet, the hate remains. Multiple levels of it. Unquenchable. I just fucking dare someone to blame the native Alaskan population for their fucking problems. I fucking dare them. I am so fucking sick and tired of being Ms. Nice Girl who understates everything that has ever happened in her life and the lives of everyone around her, avoiding conflict and pretending it never really happened. I can only be so compassionate and forgiving and understanding, and I'm at my fucking wit's end with this shit. Trying not to become a bitter shell of a human being has been monumentally hard. Uh, to this day, my parents don't know why we showed up at home without warning anybody. I've told my boyfriend and my therapist about what happened. I absolutely do not think uh, that what happened was normal. Uh, and the damage was and is incredible. Remembering these events, what feelings come up? Anger at the nearly impossible history of intergenerational abuse and trauma. Frustration with all the ignorance surrounding the nature of addiction, trauma, and dysfunction in marginalized communities. Shame, because I grew up basically wanting to relive this scenario in my fantasies. I know it's very common as a way of trying to reclaim agency and power, but it's still difficult to get over the stigma. Hatred that any human being could so callously throw entire communities to the mercy of child predators, that people could blame victims for their dysfunction uncertainty with how to possibly forgive and move forward with my life without hatred hindering, hindering it. Um, I never want to become a parent. It's so hard to convince myself that this world is safe for children. Thank you so much for that. And um, I... I I can't even imagine how complex and deep the the feelings go of all of those overlapping things. And it sounds like you have a good intellectual grasp of everything that is going on with you um, right now. And in my experience, there is a lag between intellectually understanding something and it's soaking in emotionally and feeling ourselves change. And the only way that I was able to let go of the anger, actually not even let it go, to have it seep out was time, being kind to myself, cutting toxic people out of my life, um, and connecting on a daily basis with people who deeply understand and support me that that was what helped leach out the the rage and the sadness and um and i i wish that for you and i want to remind you that you are not invisible and your story is important and we hear your pain And ending on a happy moment, this is a happy moment filled out by Maria, and 
she writes, about four years ago, I started taking medication for my depression, and the first couple of weeks were pretty tough. I talked to my father on the phone every day, and he was very supportive, even though my parents often tell me, cheer up and fight through it uh, a bit too often. I lived with my best friend, who was the one who had told me to seek help in the first place. He let me completely occupy our living room for as much as I needed and did all he could to make the process as easy as possible. One night, I was really tired when we had a friend over for tea. I really wanted to spend time with my two friends, but I was too tired to contribute to the conversation, so after a while, I just laid down on the kitchen floor next to them. They then went to the living room and picked pillows and blankets for me and came back with it all to tuck me in. So there I was, struggling with this medication that would eventually help me recover, tucked in with blankets and pillows on the kitchen floor by my two best friends who sat close by so I could keep listening to their conversation while getting the rest I needed. That is so awesome. And what a perfect, perfect snapshot given the subject matter of today and everybody listening to this was like oh man can i do that at parties because i'm fucking exhausted at parties yeah is there is there just like that feeling of a sleepover from childhood i just always loved that that feeling of just being a part of a group and you're even nap time when you were a kid, just, I don't know, just like puppies. Big, just part of a big, warm group. So thank you for sharing that. And uh, once again, remember that that phone number that we had talked about, uh, the suicide hotline number, is 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-TALK. And um, I'm going to play the aforementioned uh, audio from when I was in Croatia. And it's of Siri trying to navigate the Croatian-named streets. And uh, it, it made me laugh, so I put a little compilation of, of that together. And um, if you're out there and you're struggling, just never forget that you are not alone. And uh, thanks for listening. In 200 meters, continue straight onto Yulika Ivanova Zaranica. At the roundabout, take the fourth exit and stay on Alea 30, Svidnya. Turn left onto Yulika St. Japan Eratica, then turn right onto Omladinska Yulika. At the roundabout, take the third exit onto Yulika Vienik Franje Glavinica. Head southeast on Yulika St. Japan Erotica toward Turgon Tuna Mahanovitsa. In 200 meters, at the roundabout, take the third exit. Your destination will be on the right. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.